For some, travel means resorts and fancy drinks. For others, it's a chance to explore and learn and share and give back. This week, Impactful Travel on the podcast. Welcome to Data Doyen. I'm Dr. Pauline Hoffman, and I'm your podcast hostess. This podcast is for the data nerd and the data nervous. I take a look at what's real and what is not, what is true and what is false, truth-telling through research and education, curiosity required. Hello, data nerds and data nervous. Welcome back. I hope you are enjoying Travel Month on the podcast. I have another special guest this week, Deb Neighbor, who is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks. When I initially reached out to Deb, I thought we'd talk primarily about studying abroad, since she's also a professor and has taken students on a number of international and domestic trips. In fact, I credit Deb with my love of studying abroad. I did ask Deb some of the same questions I asked Sarah Craver last week. What got you started? Why and where do you travel? What are some good and bad travel stories? And I usually start when I do an interview with general questions and then build from the answers that I get. Now, I knew Deb was interesting. I had no idea how compelling, though. In fact, I'm dubbing her the most interesting person in the world. And I think after listening this week and next, you will agree. Yes, I'm breaking this podcast into two episodes because we talked for quite a while. We were doing some catching up. We hadn't spoken in a while. This week, we're going to delve into why she travels and some of the impactful things she's accomplished. And next week, we'll talk more specifically about students and studying abroad. Now, let me tell you how I met Deb. I know I've mentioned that a faculty colleague approached me over a decade ago asking me if I wanted to go to Africa. He had a handful of students interested in doing so, and he couldn't himself take them because his wife only allowed him one trip a year, and he regularly takes students on a service trip to the Bahamas so he couldn't go to Africa. I, of course, said yes, because remember, I don't turn down opportunities. After I said yes, though, I realized what exactly it was I had agreed to. Africa. It's a large continent. I had no contacts whatsoever. I had no idea where to start. I didn't know anything about Africa, but fate intervened. I was reading my hyperlocal newspaper and saw an article about Deb Neighbor and her nonprofit, Both Your Hands, and saw that she was doing work in several African countries, among other locales. Deb was working as a land surveyor at the time. Her office was essentially across the street from my house, so you could say that Deb Neighbor was literally my neighbor. So I sent her an email. She responded. She then met with me and the students and said, I have a wonderful community that I think would be perfect for you. And that's how we ended up in southern Uganda, working in Bethlehem Parish in the Rakai district. It's been life-changing in so many ways for so many people, both from the U.S. and Uganda. I've also traveled with Deb to Uganda. The first question I asked her was when and how did the so-called travel bug bite? Her response. Yeah, you know, when I was young, I never thought about leaving the United States at all. Um, I wanted to see out west. I wanted to see the national parks. Um, but I had no interest in traveling abroad. And uh, what really happened was in 1997, I was named one of the top five women business owners in the United States by the Small Business Administration. And that put me on tour around the United States that was funded by Avon, the makeup people. <laughs> and uh, I was doing about 
50 speeches a year all over the US. And during that time, I met people from South Africa and Kenya and India and all kinds of places who invited me to come to their countries and speak, um, mostly about women in business, but sometimes it was just kind of motivational speaking. So the first time I really went abroad was when I met a woman at a uh, dinner in Rochester, New York, where they had invited uh, women from all over the world to uh, talk about their achievements. And there was, I think it was called 50 women or something like that. And I sat at a table with this beautiful large woman who had this African dress on and the beautiful headpiece. And we started talking and she said, you must come to Malawi. And I had no idea where Malawi was. I assumed it was in Africa but really had no clue. And this was before the internet, so I couldn't Google it. I had to go to a library and look it up. <laughs> and I agreed to come. And then a little while later, I got asked to speak in New Zealand. And then I also got asked to speak in South Africa. So in 2000, I first went to New Zealand um, to speak to uh, a group of women in construction there and also at a land surveyors conference, which is what I was doing at the time. And then a few months later, I made my first trip to Africa. And uh, When I landed in Johannesburg, I thought, well, Johannesburg Airport's very modern. It's not that different than the U.S. There's a casino here. And, and I just had a a connecting flight there. So then I went on to Malawi where I was flying over these small thatched huts in the middle of nowhere. And I realized with no internet, I had only talked to this woman who had invited me once before on the telephone and then faxed her my flight information. And when I got to the airport, I had met her over a year before for maybe an hour. And I thought, that's no problem. I'll recognize her. She's a large black woman with a beautiful African outfit. And I get to the airport and there's 300 large black women in beautiful African outfits. <laughs> so um, I was the last one off the plane and I started, I was helping somebody to get their baby and all the gear off the plane. And as I walked out to the stairs going down from the plane, I saw a man on the right with a Uzi telling me to go to the right. And then I saw a woman waving to me from the tarmac and telling me to go to the left. I usually tend to listen to people with guns. So I started going to the right. And this woman ran over, shoved the, the guy in uniform out of the way, grabbed my arm and said, you're coming with me. And that was how I met Joyce Banda in Malawi. Wait a minute, Joyce Banda? Who became president of Malawi um, a few years later. I mentioned in my intro to Travel Podcast that I felt woefully uninformed about Africa and many areas of the world. 
Deb echoed that in her opening comments. She said she had no idea where Malawi was. This was obviously well before Madonna started her nonprofit and adopted children. And as Deb said, it was also before Google, so she had to actually go to a library. Now, I can understand if you heard the name Joyce Banda and shrugged your shoulders or said, who? Regular listeners and regular followers of my social media may remember me highlighting Joyce Banda, along with many other women in our March into Women's History extravaganza that happens each March. Look for it. It will be back. Normally, when I develop my podcast with interviews, I add my commentary, as you're hearing now, and then include comments from the interviewee. I got all kinds of nerdy, though, when Deb started telling this story and mentioning her foray into international travel that I had to comment that I'm going to share with you. Now, keep in mind, I've mentioned that I've traveled with Deb, and this is the first that I've heard this story. Deb, how do I? How have I never heard this story? That is... Do you know what's so funny? And I'm going to say this on the podcast, if you're okay with this, you are the most unassuming person I have ever met. And when you start telling your stories, it's like, are you goddamn kidding me? <laughs> Joyce Band is just like, come on, come on. Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. We, we became drinking buddies for a few years. I would go uh, stay in the vice presidential palace. I, I had no idea how important she was that she was married to the, uh, attorney general of Malawi at the time and later went on to become president. Um, I just, I mean, like I said, I couldn't Google these things like I would now. So I, I didn't realize that Malawi at that time was the third poorest country in the world. And, and I started hauling around with Joyce to visit all her different projects and to go see villages. And I was, so clueless. I I thought, oh, I can fix all this. I'm an award-winning winning business owner. I can tell them what they're doing wrong. And very quickly, I learned that they knew what to do right. They just didn't have the resources to do it. So um, I think I spent about 10 days in Malawi and then flew to South Africa, which was very different. But there I was working with the National Association well, the South African Women in Construction Group, which was associated to a group I belonged to in the U.S., and got to visit construction sites and uh, stay with a family there and uh, got to do all kinds of crazy things and went on my first uh, photographic safari. And that's when I became hooked on Africa and traveling. Data Doyen has never stayed in a presidential palace, though she has taken the advice of people wielding guns on more than one occasion. Uh, I'm also not paling around with any presidents, though I'm still young. I suppose there's hope. Before we continue, though, let me offer some additional information. You hear Deb talk about poverty and will continue to talk about poverty. Our World in Data notes that most people in the world, and I'm taking this directly from the Our World in Data site, most people in the world live in poverty. 85% of the world lives on less than $30 per day. Two-thirds live on less than $10 a day. And every 10th person lives on less than $1.90 per day. And again, that was taken directly from its website. Now, the World Bank has defined extreme poverty as people living on less than $1.90 a day, and that's measured using the international poverty line. But extreme poverty isn't, the only, isn't only about low income. It's also about what people can or cannot afford, and that is taken directly from the World Bank website. Now, poverty lines aren't the same in all countries. 
and higher income countries. So for example, in the US, the poverty line for a family of four is about $26,500 a year. So that means, and again, this is taken directly from the World Bank, the families who earn less than that can't afford basics. So if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they can't afford rent or food or other basic necessities. Deb mentioned that Malawi was the third poorest country in the world at the time of her visit. So the most recent information from the World Bank lists countries with the highest poverty rates in the world and the country living in the most poverty or with its residents living in the highest poverty is South Sudan with 82.3% of its population living in poverty, followed by Equatorial Guinea at 76.8%, Madagascar at 70.7%, Guinea-Bissau at 69.3%, and Eritrea at 69%. Deb continued by talking about how this visit led to a new and different approach for her she learned how much so little could impact the lives of so many. That's when, you know, at the time I was winning tons of awards back in the States for all kinds of things. And, um, and I was active in the local community, but once I saw some of the things that I came across, especially in Malawi where, you know, there was just $50 would make a huge difference if you could give $50 to a women's group, they could buy enough bricks to make an oven and they would be the only one in the village to make bread and they could make a living making bread and increase the average income of a school teacher at that time in Malawi was about $200 a year. So if I could double that to $400, they would think they had a much better life. So that's how I first became involved. And so that was 2000, and I think it was 2002, I won another national award, and that one had a $10,000 prize. So I used that to start my nonprofit, Both Your Hands. Deb's nonprofit, Both Your Hands, is what I read about that fateful day when we were introduced. I asked her how she went from Malawi to Uganda. I also wanted to know how she met people and determined where to go. So it was uh, Malawi, South Africa. Um, then uh, I had been to Africa and somebody in Western New York said, oh, you know everything about Africa. We have a Catholic priest visiting from Uganda. How would you like to have dinner with him? Because we don't know how to talk to an African. And I'm like, does he speak English? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we don't know what he eats. And <laughs> it's like, okay. So that's how I first met someone from Uganda. He invited me to come to Uganda. I went to a conference in Belgium. I met a woman from Zambia. She asked me to come to her home. I went to Zambia a couple times. Um, I would just meet people on planes and they'd ask me to come. I had a young man who saw, I guess, both your hands page contacted me, didn't want any help from me. He just lived in Nepal and wanted me to come visit him. So I was going to India anyway. And I would always say, well, it's on the way. <laughs> Everything was on the way to something else. So, um, so on my way to India, which I hooked up with India through graduate students, uh, my classmates at University of Buffalo. Then I met this, this uh, I, I was able to go to Nepal and meet this young man and his family. And 
started some projects there and, and learned the difference. I, I assumed, you know, I had been to Africa, the same projects would work in India or Nepal. And, and I learned pretty quickly that it was very different from one place to another, so. Curiosity, networking, talking, asking questions, learning as you go. Are you sensing a theme? Yeah, it's funny, like during COVID, I realized I'm actually very much an introvert. Um, <laughs> but you put me on a plane next to somebody who's interesting and I will chat or if somebody asks me questions, um, I will talk. So, uh, and I was able to be very open to the idea that um, if somebody invited me to do something, I, I had, now I look back, I had very little fear. <laughs> I would just say, yeah, sure, you know, what date would you like me there? And um, at that time, I had the means to be able to pay my own plane ticket, and I stayed at people's houses, and so it was very low cost, except for the plane ticket. And uh, I was able to go to some really incredible places, just chatting with somebody on the plane, we'd realize we had these same connections. We wanted to help people. We had um, something in common, although we, you know, maybe their English was broken and I had zero ability to speak their language. I never learned uh, to speak the Ugandan languages or Kenyan, or I tried to learn Swahili. I'm just not good at language but somehow we communicated enough to know that I could trust them. So I always had, um, except for Nepal, I always had an in-person meeting of some sort with the people that invited me first. Um, but with the, the young man from Nepal, we just chatted for months online, um, sent me pictures of his kids and his wife and told me his life story and I, just said, if you want to go to Nepal, this is the way to go. So, you know, actually, I did have a college classmate who lived in Kathmandu. So I had contacted her and she, uh, you know, she was like, I don't know this guy, but if you need me, I'm here. So I, I always had some kind of fallback plan. And um, I've only had a couple times where I ended up with all my travel. I've been to Africa alone 25 times now. And I've only had a couple times where I actually did get into scary situations. So. I would argue that I'm an introvert also. I also share her lack of fear to a point. As a caveat, she talks about being fearless, but we both agreed you should still be careful. Don't jump into the deep end of the water without maybe putting a toe in first. Make sure you have some way of checking. Now, she mentions that she had an in-person meeting first with most of the folks that she's connected with. I also like the reference to finding common ground that she talks about. We're more similar than different, and traveling helps you to see that. Scary situations? Of course I had to ask about that. What was her scariest situation? Now, remember, I've said that I think she's the most interesting person in the world. When I was in South Africa, I, I, it was my last trip there, and not just for this reason, for a lot of reasons, but um, so it was probably 2007, I think. Um, I 
was with the women in construction. They had a conference. I had been there doing some workshops with them. And then some of the women who lived in a place called Orange Farm wanted to take me to see their, their construction project site, which I did a lot. Um, and so I was with women that I had known for years. We got in their car, we drove out to Orange Farm. We went to see an orphanage. We went to see their construction site. And as we were leaving the orphanage, um, I heard my friend, I was looking at my camera, which was still film at that time. And uh, I hear my friend scream in the front seat. And I realized we have guns pointing at us through the car windows. We had been carjacked in front of the orphanage. So uh, we were taken out of the car. Um, we had, I think, five young men with guns. And although I had been to Africa a lot, this is still how my Western mind thinks. I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're in a slum area. Everybody's poor. These young men are probably so poor they can't afford bullets in their guns. This is how my brain is thinking. At that point, I had a second degree black belt and we had been taught how to stand in a situation like this so that you're not threatening, but if something happens, you can defend yourself. So I remember standing with my arms kind of out to the side and up um, and they came and patted my pant leg down and found my wallet, took it out of my pocket. I had been told to carry 10 American $1 bills. And then if you ever got held up, they know it's American money and they think it's a lot. And so they'll probably be happy with that. And that's what they did. They took the 10 American dollars and the, you know, 40 rand or whatever I had, which was like $10 in South African money out of my wallet. And they started to turn away and I said, wait, I need my wallet back. <laughs> and I just kept, you know, motioning for them to give it back to me and they did. And they took my friend's car. Um, my cameras were in the back seat. Uh, we were able to call the police. And um, in the meantime, the part that was really scary, my friends back in the city, Johannesburg, had somehow been told that we had all been shot and killed. So they thought I was dead. Um, we waited, I think about three hours, like an hour for the police and then like three hours for somebody to come pick us up. And uh, they were <laughs> extremely overjoyed to see that I was okay. Eventually I even got my ca one camera back. Um, for, through the police and my journal, which was actually the most priceless thing that I had with me um, was mailed back to me like a year later with no return address. And it turned out that this gang often shot the people in the cars and they don't know why they didn't shoot us. They did catch them, uh, a, a couple of them uh, later on. Carjacked at gunpoint. Did you hear her American mindset? They may not have had money to buy bullets for their guns. I'm glad she didn't test them on that or call their bluff. I'm also glad that she survived that. Also, I mentioned earlier how unassuming Deb is. She peppers our conversation with comments about winning awards, having a black belt, among other things. 
Yet she says these things in such a way that they're just part of the conversation. They're not boastful. They're key elements in her story. And her story is so interesting. So where do we go from here? I asked Deb about one of her favorite travel memories. And here she tells me what she did to celebrate her 50th birthday. For my 50th birthday, I decided, I at that point, I had been traveling to Africa for, uh, let's see, about seven years um, and doing these very small economic development projects. And I decided for my 50th birthday, I wanted to start 50 new businesses in two weeks in three countries. So I gathered up enough money uh, to be able to do that in donations. And I flew to Uganda, Kenya, and Zambia. And at each place, we had a birthday party for me. Um, in the village and I paid for a big party as, as you know with stereos blasting too loud and a lot of food and people coming from all over to see what's going on. I then would meet with the women in the village and I would hear their ideas um, for starting businesses and at, they thought they were just talking to me um, and at the end of the meeting I told them I was going to fund every single one of the businesses. They had a $50 budget per, per idea, and I would hand them cash right then and there, and they were in business. And then we traveled to the next village, to the next village, and to the next village. I ended up, I forget now, but about 117 new businesses in I think there were 15 or 16 different villages in three countries were started. Do you know what I did on my 50th birthday? I don't quite remember, but I'm sure I was drinking and not with Joyce Banda. I know I did not help to start several businesses in developing nations. And what I find interesting about her story about starting the businesses is that she seems to work almost exclusively with women in women's groups, a trait that I share with her. I asked her why. Pretty much, yeah. I found that women in, in many ways were easier to deal with, um, that they, they had less expectations when the men would show up to a meeting, which I often worked with both or separately with the men. Their budgets were much higher. They needed $1,000 to start anything, um, even if they didn't. Uh, this is generalities. It wasn't always true, but um, whereas women said, oh, if we could get $100, that's great. But if you give us $50, we can start something and we can make it bigger. Um, and uh, many of those projects then led to other projects or to projects um, that would build on those simple projects. Um, I learned by a lot of mistakes. Don't don't buy everybody in the village chickens because you drive down the price of eggs <laughs> because now there's too much competition. So you need you need to kind of spread out your ideas a little bit. Um, we could have an entire podcast or podcast series on the topic of supporting women. Hold the line for that because March is coming. I asked her if she ever followed up with the women to see how they were doing. 
She also shared some of her giving and support philosophy. I did follow them for years, so it became my policy with organizations or villages that when I arrived, I would tell them I would work with them for seven years. And that we would start very small. I never started in a village with more than $500 at a time because I didn't want their expectations to be big. And I didn't want to bring out uh, the people that were looking to get rich quick from these ideas. These were going to be hard work. So um, with very little input from me. So, uh, and then I would keep track of the, the projects through locals. By that time, we could pretty much communicate on the internet, which made things so much easier to be able to know. I could get pictures of the project. I could get an update. Um, before that, it was by mail or by long distance telephone. Um, I can't even guess at how many businesses or projects I started over the 18 years that I ran it, but a lot. Deb noted that she has faced some criticism. For example, why not do this in the U.S.? Her response. A lot of people in the States would ask me, well, why don't you do that, that here? And I'm like, because $50 doesn't start anything here. Um, and I could make the money go a lot further uh, overseas in some of the poorest countries in the world. My, my sisters have warned me when we go on vacation together that I am not even allowed to drive by poor neighborhoods because I immediately will want to jump out of the car and do something. After doing it for so long, I, I have back down a little bit, but now there's always projects here um, where I live and work that want my, my help or my expertise, but I'm trying to pick things that I'm really passionate about. Choosing to do things you are passionate about is key. Maintaining curiosity, doing what you can, and finding your place in the world. Also, taking the advice of your sisters this is part one of my conversation with Deb Neighbor. Next week, we will talk specifically about traveling with students and developing coursework around study abroad programs. Come back to hear more from Deb. This week's Arbitrary Random Statistic, or ARSE, takes me to Africa and beyond. Sometimes my ARSE is obvious and is based on something we discussed on the podcast. Sometimes it is truly random, an arbitrary random statistic. It is getting inside my head to determine what is top of mind, and my head can be scary sometimes. This week, and don't ask me why I thought of this, I wondered if there are countries in Africa that had not been colonized by European countries. Now, according to World Atlas, there are two, Liberia and Ethiopia. Worldwide, there are eight others that had never been colonized by Europeans, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Japan, Korea, Thailand, China, Afghanistan, Nepal, and Bhutan. Thank you to everyone for listening. Incredible and special thank you to Deb Neighbor for sharing so much with us. Listen next week for more. Show music by Bryce Murphy, logo designed by Liam McGurl. For more information and to access the data and other information discussed on this week's episode, visit datadoyen.com. If you like this podcast, tell all of your friends and be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Podcasts drop on Mondays. Please also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Be sure to go to my website to sign up for my newsletter. 
Also, tell me your travel story. Which trip was most memorable for you? Why? Share your advice and your travel bucket list. And always remember, stay curious. Thank you.